Hi, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Blame It on the Aliens. I'm your host. And drum roll, please, because this week we finally have an episode about aliens. I know. It's incredible. So this week we have aliens, UFO sightings, and glitches in the matrix. So it couldn't get better than that. Without further ado, let's get into it. I can't say for sure what happened to me that night, but here is what I know. I was driving home for the weekend from school at Indiana University. It takes me about two hours to get home and I left Bloomington at around 10 p.m. At exactly 10.53, I'm on a rural stretch of two-lane highway I take home and I notice what appeared to be flashing lights behind me. I thought, great, I'm getting pulled over. So I turned onto the next country road about a quarter mile from where I noticed the lights. As the car came to a stop and I started to open my glove box to get out my registration and proof of insurance, the lights suddenly disappeared and no car drove past. Now, here is where the story takes a turn for the weird. And I'm sure you guys will think I'm just making it all up because It really does seem like something straight out of a typical UFO movie or story. The electronics in my car started to go haywire. The radio was randomly changing stations while the volume kept going up and down, while the dome light and headlights started to flicker and turn off and back on. This was at 10.56 p.m. I started thinking to myself that the battery must be failing or else I have some kind of short somewhere in my electrical system of the car. So I leaned down to pop the hood so I can take a look at the battery. And that's the last thing I remember doing. The next thing I know, I open my eyes and see nothing but the night sky full of bright stars. It was a cold night and it seemed like I had never seen stars that bright in my life. I sat up and looked around and I saw absolutely nothing, nothing at all. I was in the middle of a field surrounded by corn stalks left over from the recent harvest. As I started to come to my senses, I started to freak out. Where am I? Why the fuck am I asleep in the middle of a field? Where the fuck is my car? I got up and started walking toward the distant headlights I could see from a road about a half mile away. When I got to the nearest intersection, I looked at the signs which read 350 North and 50 West. I was half a mile away from my car, which was just off the main road. I started walking towards the headlights I could see on the main road. I can't say how long it took me to walk the half mile, but it couldn't have been more than 10 or 15 minutes. When I arrived at my car, all the lights were out. My battery had died, which struck me as odd because I couldn't have been gone for that long. I looked at my phone, which was sitting on the passenger seat, and the time was 2.17 a.m. Over three hours had passed since I turned off onto the side road for the flashing lights behind me. I remember sitting in my car completely dumbfounded, wondering what the hell had just happened to me. After about half an hour of just sitting there, I remember that my battery was dead. So I got on the phone and called AAA to come out and give me a jump. It took about an hour for them to get out to me since I was a good distance away from the nearest town during which time I just sat in silence, running through the possible scenarios in my head concerning what had just happened. To this day, I couldn't tell you what really happened to me that night. All I know is I can't think of any plausible explanation as to why I woke up over a half a mile away from my car in the middle of a cornfield more than three hours after I had stopped. I have only shared this story with one other person, my uncle. 
I'm sure people would either look at me like I'm crazy or they would call bullshit on the whole story. And I can't blame them. If somebody came to me with a story like that, that so closely mirrors the stereotypical encounter story, I probably wouldn't believe them either. been talking about these stories to some of y'all for a while and have finally been able to meet with my dad face to face to hear these stories from him again and confirm some details. As we talked, we both kind of noticed how the tradition of storytelling has changed over the years. Before the internet, my grandpa told my dad stories who in turn told me stories. These stories left deep impressions on me, which is why campfire scary stories is probably one of my favorite genres of storytelling. Now, over text, I can't relay the same inflections and cadence of my dad's voice, and I can't mimic the gestures he uses to illustrate a point. I really wish I could. So I did my best to capture these old stories in writing. I always tell them around campfires, but hopefully I can immortalize them here for others to read and share as well. Let's start with Grandpa's Border Patrol stories. I had heard stories about my grandpa ever since I was a kid. He was my dad's dad and had experienced a lot in life. And this in turn generated some of the most amazing stories I had heard in my childhood. After the Korean War, he became a law enforcement officer in Lubbock, Texas in the late 50s, being the first Hispanic to be employed in the Texas civil service system there. And then from 1960 to 67, he served as a Texas border patrol agent becoming one of the first of five Hispanics to be employed by that agency up to that time. He later worked for the U.S. Customs Agency Service and the DEA in the 70s. My dad always told me some amazing stories, and not all of them fit here, and some are not for me to share. But he has two that, although did not happen to him, have been told to my dad, who later told them to me in pretty good detail. So the next two stories take place between 1960 and 1967. My dad's family was living in the Southwest Texas town of Eagle Pass, which is a border town that borders the Mexican city of Piedras Negras. My grandpa was doing border patrol work there and in the nearby border towns that are scattered along the Rio Grande River. Our first story is The Sand Trap. Now, before I get into the story, I have to explain what a sand trap is. It's not necessarily a trap, exactly. There are some spots along the Rio Grande that are low enough to cross over without much effort. These areas are patrolled, but can't be monitored 24-7, especially back then, so sometimes immigrants pass through without detection. In places where the brush wasn't too thick, They would throw down layers of sand and smooth it out. This allowed them to monitor and count footprints and track who or how many people were crossing the river and into the U.S. My grandpa worked the morning shift and arrived at the station to supposedly catch up on paperwork and get some coffee. That's where he found the late night officer, who I'll refer to as Mr. L, at the station back from his post earlier than he should have. He was pale, looking very distraught. Grandpa asked Mr. L what his deal was and was told the following story. Mr. L had been hearing rumors of some creepy post out in Del Rio, a town about an hour north of Eagle Pass. Essentially, there was a low point in the river where immigrants could cross and enter private ranch land. Multiple BP agents would be sent to check the sand trap there to see if anything was turning up, but they never got any footprints. They needed someone out there to monitor it more closely. However, nobody wanted to stay after dusk. The area was rumored to be unsettling and quite possibly haunted. Mr. L thought that that was a crock of shit. My dad describes Mr. L as a very tall man, shaved head and very tough. 
the kind of person that doesn't take any bullshit. He decided that he would go out there himself at night and show these other guys that they're just being a bunch of sissies. He drives to Del Rio Station and starts getting ready. A lot of the guys were telling him not to worry about it. They can just check the trap in the morning for footprints and showed obvious signs of concern. But of course, he brushed it off and was handed a large ring of keys. The keys were to unlock the multiple ranch gates in the country as he would be driving deep into the middle of nowhere and through multiple properties. He got in his service vehicle, made sure he had all the supplies he needed and took off down the old country road and then would later turn off to the gated ranch road. It took him over an hour of passing through multiple gates and driving unkempt dirt roads just to get to the spot. He left in the late afternoon, and by the time he arrived at the post, dusk was just upon him. He said the spot was loaded with mesquite and creosote and all sorts of brush. You couldn't walk through the brush unless you had a bush hog tractor clear the place out. There was, however, a small, worn path leading from the river that you could get through just barely. This is where the sand trap was placed, since it served as a checkpoint for any foot traffic. Of course, the trap is devoid of any footprint, so he settles down and waits for nightfall. The night was pretty uneventful. The moon was out and lit up the area in a dim, ethereal light. The air was still, and despite being out in the middle of nowhere in Texas there weren't many of the usual night sounds he was accustomed to. He says he would have fallen asleep, but the lack of sound kept him on edge and made him unnecessarily anxious. At around 3 or 4 a.m., he was getting the feeling that maybe this spot wasn't so bad after all, and his anxiety was just from hearing rumors. Then he heard the faint sound of footsteps. He put out his cigarette and tightened his grip on his .357 Magnum sidearm. The sound of brush being pushed away and footsteps got closer. The moon was lower now and it was very dark, but he could see the silhouettes of three men coming into view. They emerged from the brush, but something was off about their appearance. He thought maybe it was the lack of light, but their silhouettes were pitch black. It was dark, but these forms looked like they were darker than night. Their eyes were glowing similar to how a cat's would if you shined a light at their face in the dark. He called out to them, but they kept moving, ignoring his commands to freeze. They walk in a single file, slowly ambling along the path. He points his vehicle spotlight at them and feels his blood run cold. The forms look like Shadows cast on a wall in a puppet show. He said it looked like someone was walking in front of his spotlight, but the shadows that were cast were disembodied and didn't belong to anything. He stood in awe and fear for probably 45 minutes. The forms were gone and there was no longer any sound coming from the brush. He went down to check the sand trap and found that it was still smooth and it was like nobody had ever crossed that area. He suddenly felt dreadful and as though something was watching him. The feeling wouldn't go away and he started to feel fearful. He got in his vehicle and left. He drove straight to Eagle Pass and since my grandpa came in early, he heard everything from the now shaken Mr. L. My grandpa didn't have a fun time as Mr. L didn't bother to lock the numerous ranch gates behind him. I wish I could say this is the fun part of the story where my grandpa goes over there to close it for him and see the spot for himself, but he had stuff to do and delivered the keys back to the Del Rio station and let them take care of it. Mr. L never went back to that area, but he stopped making fun of his fellow colleague stories. Funnily enough, not much changed about him. He wasn't scared of anything and was a mean guy all around. But whenever Mr. L retold the story at later times, my dad could tell that it was an event that really shook him. My grandpa continued to hear stories about that remote Del Rio post, but over time, he heard less about it as he was given assignments that took him away from that town. He believes it was haunted, and people said it was an evil place. And although they never caught anybody in that area in his seven years as a Border Patrol agent, there surely was something crossing over. 
The second story from my grandfather is the horseback rider. This is another one that didn't happen to my grandpa, but was told by his colleague as they were exchanging stories one morning at the station. His colleague, who we'll call Angus, was another one of those true Texan, no bullshit types. He graduated from Texas A&M University, was a bona fide cowboy, and had worked as a ranch hand for years before coming on to Texas Border Patrol. He would patrol ranches and other properties near the border on horseback and would monitor sand traps and look for anything or anyone suspicious. This one instance took place near Rio Grande City. He was on horseback in the middle of nowhere on a ranch in Star County, Texas. The sun was hot and he hadn't come across anything or anybody for hours. He was miles away from any service road, much less a country road, and he started to get thirsty. He took a quick break to drink some water and get his horse hydrated too. He wiped the sweat off his brow when maybe 500 feet away, he saw a figure moving across the plains at a decent pace. He took a sip out of his canteen and got his binoculars out. He could see it was an older man with a cowboy hat riding a horse at a slight trot. Angus closed his canteen and put his binoculars back around his neck. He radioed in the incident and mounted his horse and took off after the person, hoping to intercept him. He started off with his horse at a full gallop, kicking up dust behind him. And the area was hilly, and he passed a bend and saw that the rider was now further away than he was before. Confused, but determined, Angus drove his spurs into the side of his horse to goad it into going faster. They started to gain ground on the other rider, but he disappeared around another bend as Angus was close behind. When Angus came around the bend, he saw that the rider was even further away. Angus started to get pissed off. Obviously, the guy was fucking with him and he was ready to apprehend him. He gets his horse to go even faster. His hat was barely hanging on and everything was shaking and starting to come loose from the holsters and bags. He gained on the figure yet again, but after another bend, the figure came even further away. He had never made his horse go this fast. Its grunts were harsh and labored. After each bend, the figure got further and further away until it finally disappeared. For fear of his horse's safety, he decided to call off the pursuit and radio in that the suspect had gotten away. He dismounted and gave his horse some water and they had probably traveled about five to 10 miles from where they originally spotted the lone horseback rider. He decided to double back. He started to notice that the only tracks were his own. No other tracks but the ones from his horse were found the whole way back. He told everyone on the McAllen horseback unit about it and asked them if they'd ever experienced anything like it, but not one of them believed him said it was just a mirage or he had a heat stroke. Angus assured them that he knew the signs of a heat stroke in his limits. He had been a ranch hand for years, after all. He wouldn't have continued if he knew he wasn't well enough to do so. He let it go for a while, but told my grandpa eventually when he did some work in Eagle Pass. He never seemed scared about it, but perplexed. He continued working in that area of Star County, but he never experienced anything like that ever again. Now for my dad's stories. There's not that much information I really need to give on my dad other than that he grew up in a completely different lifestyle than I did. I grew up in basically suburbia on a cul-de-sac and lived in a city, whereas his family stayed in the valley for most of their life. He moved to the areas where my grandpa was assigned, so Laredo, McAllen, Eagle Pass, Falcon Lake. He grew up with small towns and a lot of free time for adventures. The first story from my dad is the UFO. This story takes place truly in the middle of nowhere in the mid-1970s when my dad was about 11 or 12. 
the way my dad described where it happened was by Alpine, kind of close to Trilingua, which is funny because those towns are like 80 miles apart. If you get a map of Texas, though, and look below Marfa and Alpine, a little bit above Big Bend National Park, you'll see a vast expanse of nothing, which is hundreds of thousands of acres of private ranch lands and just general Texas nothingness. My dad was with his uncle and his cousins who had a property deep in the middle of nowhere, and they were going to stay for a few days at said property. It was accessible by traveling over 40 miles of dirt road, and this meant over two hours of slow, bumpy riding. The day was hot, but beautiful. Not a single cloud in the sky. When they finally got to the small property, they started to unpack the truck and put their belongings inside. My dad's uncle said they had to climb a hill to get to a well so they could gather water. So they all climbed the hill to where the well was located with their buckets and canteens. My dad was fooling around waiting for his turn and kicking some rocks around. That's when one of his cousins pointed at the sky. There was a small cloud in the sky and it was the only cloud in the sky. He said it was small, gray, and very round almost a perfect sphere. Everyone stopped what they were doing to watch it. It slowly got smaller and smaller and then finally disappeared. They thought it had evaporated and thought it was a cool little weather phenomenon. When my dad took his turn at the well, his cousin shouted that it was back. My dad turned around and sure enough, it was. It was in the same exact spot and was static in position. But once again, it grew smaller and smaller, then disappeared. Then it would reappear. They watched this go on for about 15 minutes. My dad, being as young as he was, thought it was some kind of alien spaceship. His uncle was watching it through his binoculars and handed them to my dad to see. My dad said it didn't look like a cloud, but like a swirling cloud of smoke. It would shrink into itself, then reappear out of thin air. He said he was struck with fear and felt the urge to lay down. He was trembling and didn't know why he felt so nauseous and frightened. His uncle ushered everyone off the hill and back down to the cabin. He felt better after a few minutes and nothing else like it ever happened over the weekend. I asked him when I was at his house if maybe it was the smoke cloud or smoke signal, but... He explained how there was no column of smoke connected to it, and it was too high up to be dust or anything else. They also couldn't figure out why it was just stuck in the sky, in that one spot shrinking into itself and then reappearing, like a creepy, pulsing dance. He went back out there a couple of times after that, but never experienced anything remotely like that again. There's plenty of stories about that area. The Marfa lights have been debunked, but there are other mysterious happenings that come out of Big Bend and between Highway 67 and 118. My goal is to one day go out there and see if I can experience these things myself. The second story from my dad is the canyon. Okay, so I completely forgot about the story until my dad told it last night. This has to be one of my all-time favorite off-the-trail scary stories that is 100% true. I had to take down notes as my dad was speaking as there are a lot of details. In around 1989 or so, my dad was enrolled at the University of Texas in Austin. He was focusing on art and graphic design at the time, His professor, a very talented artist by the name of Bill Wyman, was my dad's watercolor professor at that time. My dad always lauded him for his amazing skills and Bill did the same for my dad. Both are great artists and encouraged each other and learned a lot from their time together. One day, when my dad was in his class, he noticed a glass printed black and white photo of a canyon. The photo was incredible. In the scene, half of the canyon was in a beautiful summer scape with clear skies, clouds, and sun. In the second half, there were dark clouds, 
rain, and even snow. My dad was taken aback. He had never seen such an amazing photograph with this type of double exposure. He asked Bill about it, who puts his brush down and a very serious face washes over him. That picture right there, Bill says, that's not edited. I took that picture exactly as I saw it. It's not mixed media and there is no trickery. He wiped his hands on his apron. There's a story behind it too. He gestured for my dad to take a seat so he could regale the story of the picture to him. I was never a religious man, but when I went to that canyon, I think I met something there that wanted me to change my mind. My dad was sucked in just as I was when I first heard this story. So the date of when this took place is unknown. From my own research and from talking with my dad, it would have taken place anywhere from 1966 when he was teaching at East Texas University to the mid-1970s to 80s when he was teaching at University of Texas in Austin. Either way, Bill had a contact from the Navajo Reservation somewhere in New Mexico who had access to a canyon that contained old petroglyphs that had never been shown to the public. Bill met up with the contact and two other men in town for a bite to eat and to discuss what they were going to do and where they were going. They didn't offer much details about the petroglyphs other than to not touch them under any circumstances. He was an art professor and of course he respected all forms of historical and ancient art. There was no way he was going to touch anything, but he promised anyway. They left in their Jeep and headed towards the canyon. It was a gorgeous day. Blue sky and sun with the perfect mix of minimal cloud cover and 80 degree weather. They drove for a long time on an empty highway until they pulled off into a dirt drive where they had to pass through a gate. Bill's contact locked the gate behind them and they were soon off again down this small desert road. They got to the canyon entrance and it was gorgeous. Bill was perplexed, however, when they handed him a jacket and a hat. As they drove on down into the canyon, the sky got darker and the air got colder. They got to another gate that was in the middle of the canyon, but was also covered in barbed wire. They passed through and immediately, the atmosphere felt charged with a feeling of energy, almost like static electricity, and all the hair on his body stood up. The sky got darker still and it began to rain. Bill was bewildered at the sudden change of weather. It got colder the further they got away into the canyon until finally the rain turned to snow. Bill became anxious, but none of his questions were answered by the other three men. The snow came down harder and soon enough they could barely see five feet in front of them. They came to a stop and told Bill that they would have to walk the rest of the way there. They trudged through the snow for about 30 minutes. Although it was a light blanket on the ground, there was still very little visibility in front of them. Finally, they came to a rock face, which stood under a natural canopy in the rock which shielded them from the snow. On this rock face were the most incredible petroglyphs Bill had seen in his life. They were well-preserved and looked as though the artist had just walked away. However, there was one that Bill couldn't take his eyes away from. He said it was the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen. The man who knew about this place told Bill that it was a symbol of evil and it was a sign of a curse. They said that they had to leave very soon. Bill kept looking at the symbol entranced. He felt a sense of calm wash over him. He felt his hand reach out towards it. He turned to face the other men, but they had already started walking back. He faced the symbol again and noticed his hand was almost about to touch it. At that very moment, he felt an overwhelming pressure and the feeling of dread overtook him. He whipped his hand back. He turned back towards the other men and they were barely three little black specks in the distance. He sprinted towards them like his life depended on it. They got back to the Jeep and clambered in, 
then quickly drove off in silence. Just like how they came in, the weather changed as they progressed out of the canyon. He took the picture as they were leaving, which illustrated the stark contrast in the weather there. The feeling of dread never left him, even after he got back, but eventually faded after a few years. However, his opinions on spirituality changed and he truly believed that whatever was there was trying to let him know that there's something else out there that lives among us that we cannot explain. He made correspondence a few more times with his New Mexico friend, but was never invited back, nor was he given any details about the symbol or the insane weather phenomenon they experienced. I've tried to find the picture. According to my dad and to Bill Wyman, who I believe has since passed on, it was a very real photo. And as far as I know, has been archived by the Smithsonian Archives of American Art. It's out there somewhere, but just needs to be found. The last story from my dad is a bonus story, the Ski Lodge ghost story. I decided to include one of my favorites from my dad. It's not off the trail, but it's decently short and comes from our old doctor. So our old doctor, I'll call him David, who is now a close family friend, decided to go up to Colorado to ski with his college buddies. There were about four of them in a nice ski lodge As they were picking out rooms, David walked into one and said he instantly got the heebie-jeebies. I'm not sleeping in there. Someone else can have it. And proceeded to take the room across the hall. His friend took the room instead. He felt as though it was off-putting, but shrugged it off and slept there anyway. After a long day of skiing, they arrived back to their lodge exhausted and ready for sleep before the next day of activities. David fell asleep first, and soon enough, everybody was out. In the middle of the night, David was awoken by his buddy in the room across from him, calling out, David? David, you awake, man? He responds, yeah, I'm awake. What's the matter? What do you need? His buddy just replied with, never mind, man, just checking. After minutes of silent confusion, he drifts back off to sleep. In the morning, the four dudes talk over breakfast about the day's plans. During a moment of silence, David's buddy asked if anybody came into his room that night. Everybody shook their heads no. David asked, I remember you calling my name in the middle of the night. What was that about? His buddies just look at him and he replies, someone was standing in the doorway of my bathroom. But when I called for you and you answered across the hall, I knew it wasn't you. When I looked back in the doorway, The figure was gone. The group was thoroughly creeped out and decided to clear the house for possible intruders. They came up empty-handed. David's buddy slept on the couch for the remainder of the trip. When he got back to Texas, David researched the lodge and found that a skier killed themselves in the bathroom of the very same creepy room that he had refused to sleep in. My brother and I both have a distinct memory of stumbling across a facility in the woods. My brother is seven years older than me. So when I was nine to 10, he was in high school and had to hide from our parents that he smoked and dipped tobacco. As a result, most days of the week after he got home from school, I was homeschooled. We'd go out in the woods for an hour or two. We lived way out in the country in an already rural part of East Texas, so there were plenty of woods to explore. The land south of our house was all owned by a mining company, and my parents didn't want us going out there. So we always crossed a fence to the north of our house and explored the woods out there. Very likely some local's property that we had no business being on, but when you live out in the country, you figure you'll have plenty of a sign before you accidentally walk into somebody's backyard. After a few months of venturing out in this area, never traveling more than an hour's distance from our house and always in daylight, we decided one day we'd just keep walking and walking 
My brother smoked and spit into a Dr. Pepper bottle. We entered big pastures and dove back into even deeper woods. Whenever we've talked about it, we've always said that we must have traveled at least a mile, but we usually say far more. Eventually, we came across a circular pond I distinctly remember having a much higher rim on one side. My brother explained that this was because a tractor had dug it out and piled up more dirt on one side than the others. We kept going past the pond and entered another patch of woods. As we came out, we saw that the tree line curved around sharply to the right, and the clearing we now stood in opened up far wider. We went in that direction, and while my memory of getting there is a little hazy, I know we suddenly came across a very large white building surrounded by a high fence. There was a gate large enough for vehicles to move in and out, and a dirt roading leading away from the facility. We could hear the sounds of activity and could see people walking around the outside of the fence near the gate. I'm afraid any other detail I could give at this point might be colored by false memory or exaggerations from an imaginative young brain. So I'll wait to talk to my brother about it more before I go any further. At that point, we both felt the spine-tingling terror alerting the body that something about this was very wrong. We were not supposed to be here. We were at the very least going to get into serious trouble. We were stranded in the middle of a clearing gawking at a facility of some kind on what was obviously somebody else's property. And we were seeing something deep out in the woods that we had never known was here. All this time, we'd spent walking around these woods. If we'd just gone a ways further, we would have stumbled across this. I remember standing there for a moment longer, asking my brother what this could possibly be. He told me something along the lines of, I have no clue, but we really should get the fuck out of here. The tone of his voice truly freaked me out, and I remember running hard back the way we came, crossing the same pond and cutting a path as close as possible to the route we had traveled. When we finally stopped, out of breath, my brother told me that in no way, shape, or form would I utter a word of this to our parents. They were spankers and awful grounders, so he knew the trouble he'd be in for taking his little brother into what was quite possible danger. After that day, we kept going out in those woods, but never that far. Eventually, my brother got caught with a can of skull and my dad made him eat the whole can and puke it up on the porch. Being an easily intimidated little kid, it wasn't hard to get more information out of me about my brother's smoking and dipping habits but I never brought up the facility we'd found. Over the years, my brother and I brought this story up many times. Our parents have gotten way laxer since we've all grown up, and we've even told them the story, to my mother's retroactive shock. We've added a lot of other weird ones to our arsenal in the time since, as our family has always lived by a huge area of land for us to wander around on. But this is one of our favorites. It's always... Remember the time we got killed by those government researchers? Remember the time we found that crazy building in the woods with those people walking around it? But for the past few days, this event has been really bugging me. I told my wife about it in detail, and she was pretty amused. I thought I'd look on Google Maps a little bit in the area we grew up in, something I'm honestly surprised I'd never done before for these specific reasons. And what I found, or haven't found, is really bizarre. Moving north from my old house, which has since burned down and left an ugly scar on the satellite image on Google Maps, I can very clearly make out the woods we spent our time in. When I go further north, I can see several large clearings followed by more wooded areas. And eventually, I even found the circular pond and I'm positive I can make out the higher end of the pond that we stood on as my brother explained how it had been made. When I drag the map further, I see what looks like a clearing and the sharp curve of the tree line to where we saw the facility. But there's nothing there. No trace of a building. No evidence of a dirt road leading away from an old structure. It's just pasture, 
and more trees. In fact, when I zoom out and look at the whole area, it doesn't seem possible for there to have been an operation of the scale we saw out there at all. Just a little ways further north, the land becomes nothing but pasture with houses pressed up against a country road. For people to have come and gone from this area, they would have had to have a road of some kind, as well as power lines stretched out to the building. But there's nothing like that on Google. In fact, there's really no here it was spot on the map. I mean, it's like it was never there to begin with. It's been a few years since we've talked about it. So I texted my brother earlier today to ask him if he still remembered this happening. He called me immediately after and said, hell yeah, man, that was a really weird day. I mean, you know how good I used to be in the woods, but that shit really freaked me out and we had to get out of there. This whole event feels more and more like something that we walked into that we should not have seen. I still remember the feeling of dread upon finding a place and knowing that something bad would happen if we stuck around. I'm going to try and send him this post later so he could read it and corroborate as well and look at the Google Maps for himself to see if he sees anything different. I'm from Finland, and that's also where these things I'm about to describe to you happened. This was some years ago, pre-smartphone GPS era. It was the end of the summer, and myself and two friends were on a camping trip way up in the north in Lapland. The mosquito season was over, and the weather was cooling down in anticipation of the coming fall. The three of us had packed food and gear for a 10-day trek and the car we had arrived in had been left at the parking lot of a visitor center. This happened within the premises of the Euro Kekonen National Park, a 985-square-mile stretch of wilderness near the Russian border. The terrain there varies greatly, from treeless and semi-mountainous to dense forest of spruce and pine and dwarf birch. There are lots of swamps, Seeing reindeer is not uncommon, and some nights you might hear wolves in the distance. You can run into a bear or a wolverine in this place, but of course, normally, they avoid people. We mostly camped in a tent, but some nights we used shelters and simple huts provided for travelers free of charge. The trip had lasted five days, and we were at the furthest of any kind of civilization we were going to be on that particular outing, truly in the middle of nowhere. There really is nothing there. There are no villages, towns, or industry. The place is a national park, after all. Seeing other hikers happen from time to time, you'd see some people in the distance, maybe. Very rarely would you come face-to-face with anyone. So, in the middle of our trip, we were camped in a small clearing, woodland extending around us for a considerable distance in all directions. It was already dark, We had eaten our evening meal and all three of us were jammed in our only tent. It was a bit crammed, but we fit. We took turns carrying it during the hikes. We were just exchanging some jokes and crude humor in the dark, like guys in their 20s do, about to go to sleep in our sleeping bags. When we quieted down, we began to hear it, talking and the sound of machinery. Given our location, this was profoundly weird. We camped in a tent because there were no huts nearby. Maybe there was another camp somewhere near us. We couldn't quite make out what was being said, but it was a human voice, no doubt about it. But nothing really could explain the sound of the heavy machinery. It sounded like an excavator or a tank, something big, powerful, and really not too far away. Combined with the sound of talking, we thought construction yard. But at that time of night, in an unpopulated, protected nature reserve, we got out of our tent. It was cold and pitch black. The campfire had some coals still glowing. We took out our flashlights. My two buddies have always been a lot braver than me. The sound was clearly coming from the north, maybe half a kilometer away. We thought the construction might be going on behind a small hill some distance away. We could see no lights or anything. 
we still couldn't make out what was being said. The speaking-like voice was monotonous, and it was impossible even to say what language was being used. Still sounded a lot like a person speaking, though. You may be aware of the sort of spooky phenomenon of hearing a human voice in static. Maybe you've used a blow dryer and been sure somebody was talking, turn it off, and it was just something the brain tried to interpret from the steady hum. Maybe it was sort of like that. It's hard to explain. The machinery-like sound continued, not loud, but you could sort of make out the powerful engine, at times accelerating, adding power, at times at an idle. My two friends resolved to go find out what was going on. We put our warm clothes back on, donned boots, and I sat next to the dying fire, adding some more wood to it. I would stay at camp while my buddies left to check out this mystery construction yard in the middle of nowhere in the Lapland woods. So there I sat. The guys took out their maps, took a compass reading, and left. And I could hear them make their way through the forest, see their light from their flashlights. Then they were gone. The weird sounds continued, unaltered. They were gone 15 minutes, then maybe 30, then the better part of an hour. It was odd, judging by the volume of the sound. They should have reached it, checked it out, and been back already. I added more firewood and tried to make out what the person talking was saying, but it was too tinny and obscure. The guys had been gone way over two hours, and I figured they had stayed for coffee with the construction guys or something. Then... The sound stopped, just like that. And it just ended all at the same time. The engine sound and the voice just both quit and it was very silent. I waited for another 30 minutes, very worried now that something had happened, that maybe my friends were lost. Should I go and try to find them? I shouted their name several times and built the fire pretty big. I was scared shitless when suddenly I saw the flashlights of my friends. Apparently they were returning in a hurry. The guys got back to camp out of breath and they told me the following. They had followed the sound beyond the small ridge in the distance. There was nothing there and it seemed like they were not getting any closer to the source of the sounds. They had to stop every now and then, be quiet and listen to it to be able to walk towards it. They walked and stopped like this for some time then realized they were not getting any closer. The sound didn't change in volume. They decided to just go a little bit further several times when suddenly the sound just stopped, like somebody pressed a button on a recording. They realized that they had been going for a long time. They were in the middle of the dark woods alone. They reversed the reading and started back at a brisk pace. Eventually, they saw my big-ass fire from the top of the hill and found their way back. The weird thing is, we seem to think that the sound stopped at different times. They had been gone two and a half hours in total. They said the sound stopped at around the hour 15 mark after they left. They then started to head back immediately, return trip taking a bit longer even though they kept a good pace. They apparently wandered around for a bit. For me though, the sound stopped at the two hour mark, just 30 minutes before they returned. We did not sleep that night. Nothing more happened on that trip and we never found out what that weird construction yard-like sound was about. When we returned to the Barks Visitor Center some five days later, we asked around, but no one knew of any ongoing construction taking place in the whole National Park area. It's been bugging me ever since. Encounter in Wisconsin. I'm a member of the NG in Wisconsin. I moved from enlisted to officer via ROTC and was attached to a unit in my prospective MOS while in the program. I don't really want to give specifics on my service as the community is small enough to identify me to peers in the unlikely circumstance that they're on this subreddit. In 2014, my platoon decided to conduct nighttime land navigation at Fort McCoy from 2030 to 0030. 
While the Army is typically all about buddy pairs, Nightland Nav is one of the few cases we can do things solo if we so choose. And having done Nightland Nav plenty before, I step off alone, compass, map, and headlamp in hand. For those who don't know, land navigation involves seeking out markers on a course by plotting their coordinates on a map and moving there via terrain reference and compass. At night, this is typically done without light as much as possible. When light is used, it's red. This minimizes damage to night vision. Substantially, these methods also keep you concealed in a tactical environment when employed with noise discipline. I bring this up so you can understand a few things about my circumstance. I was moving through the woods while making a token effort to be hard to spot and hear. The woodland I was in was part of a larger forest system that was frequently traveled. That night, we had some 15-ish soldiers clomping around. My illumination was a toggleable headlamp that was toggled to be red when turned on. To cycle to white light, I had to turn it off twice. The cycle was off, solid white, off, flashing white, off, solid red, off, flashing red, off, solid white. My assigned points will take me to the other side of the course and back. A good hour and a half of walking as the crow flies. There are more or less in a straight line, so I estimate two and a half hours out and back. I know if I come back too early, I might be given another set of points, so I resolve to walk out, take a break for an hour, then mosey on back. The first half of this goes as planned, and I get to my points without much trouble and wind up sitting on a hillside at around 10 at night. It's cloudy, but the moon is full. I can see wellish when the sky is clear, poorly when it's not. Occasionally, I see a red light bobbing in the distance below me, once, a pair of platoon members passed down the hill from me, using white light to try to read their map. I startled them when I asked if they needed help. At the end of my break, there's no more motion in my area. Most people had likely already walked out and back, or they were too lost and took the handrailing road home. I'm feeling pretty at one with my surroundings, having sat in the same spot, eating stale Skittles for a good long while. Owls who trees way. All is well. I trot down my hill and step through some brush. I'm in a clearing where prairie intersects forest. There are some dead trees in the area. One of them is split halfway up. At the top, approximately 15 feet, I can make out a head and shoulder silhouette against the clouds backlit by the moon. I walk up to ask how they got up there and if they're stuck, when the shadow twitches and I get the impression it's turning toward me. I stand there looking at it and it's maybe looking at me. The situation feels off, but I'm not going to let a battle buddy punk me. I ask if they need a hand. Mid-sentence, the moonlight comes back. It's clear the thing on the tall stump is not a soldier. This moonlight glimpse is the best look I get at the thing. It looks like a stretched out bald person. Its long arms are clutching the stump. I can't make out a face, but it looks pinched. And by that I mean I, I couldn't see its eyes or mouth, like they were small and in the middle of the head. It's skinny, like it hasn't eaten, but it's tall and obviously strong to have made such a vertical climb. It was definitely facing me. It was probably the whole time I was in the clearing. Maybe since I came down the hill. Maybe my speech startled it. I swear loudly. It rapidly scurries down the trunk. I flick on my red light and catch it on all fours moving toward the brush line in the direction I'm headed. Automatically, I keep the toggling the lamp to be white light. That means it goes off, then to flashing red. And in the flash, I see the thing at the wood line but I think it's flipped around and is backing in, probably to keep its eyes in me. In the few seconds it takes for me to get to the white light, it's gone. I scan the tree line, which is silent. When it moved, there was a scraping noise, plus the woodland brush is dense. If it was still running, I would hear it. I reason that it must have stopped. 
It must still be watching me. I fumble out my knife and keep looking around the woods in front of me. After ages, I start inching along a perpendicular path to my initial route of travel, an angle that will link me up with the hardball road that runs up and down the side of this course. Once in the road, I can take it back to where my platoon is parked. My major problem is that the road is 10 minutes of walking away from my current position, mostly woodland. That can't be helped. I mean, I have to get out of the clearing first. My progress on that front is painfully slow. I'm fighting my natural urge to freeze in place like a deer in headlights. After sidestepping a good 10 meters, I hear a corresponding rustle and think I see movement. It's enough to get me to turn and bolt right into a downed log, which trips me. I scramble up to my feet and look back to the wood line where there is an audible commotion. I glimpse a leg and ass moving back into the woods. At this point, I'm done with the whole situation, but don't want to run again. I start power walking to the road, turning to look as much as I can while seeing what the thing is doing. Over the movement of my own kid, I can hear it moving alongside me, parallel. As I near the end of the clearing, I think I hear it picking up pace as if to cut me off, and I make the decision to sprint. When I enter the woods, my path is clear, but I think I can hear it in my periphery. I don't stop and run hard until I hit the paved road. I bite it hard a few times along the way, but recover with a frantic speed I cannot consciously replicate. Once in the road, I run perpendicular to the forest until I don't think I hear it anymore. I'm winded from my breakout run. From the middle of the road, I have good visibility and decide to walk to catch my breath. It's quiet for a while. Then I hear a branch move around 30 feet in the air from the woods I had just fled. I snap my gaze up and see a pale, ovular face, half in shadow, peeking at me from around a trunk. I take off again. After way too long, I make it back to the headlights of our LMTVs. It's 12.15. What happened, cadet? Did you get lost out there? You're covered in mud. Did you fall down? Or are you out of breath? I, I got lost on my way back. I rolled down Pike's Peak. I, I ran to get back in time. LOL, cadet was lost. I knew better than to claim I saw a monster. Already, my reaction had left me feeling foolish. In the years since drilling at FMC, I've never experienced anything like that again. McCoy does not have a history of disappearances. As far as I know, neither do the two closest towns, Sparta and Toma. I've done Nightland Nav alone a few times since without issue. This is less from courage and more from me deciding I must have interpreted the situation wrong. After diving into paranormal subreddits, I've come around to the idea that I should trust my own account. Maybe the world is weirder than I thought. If anyone has had similar experiences elsewhere, hopefully an explanation, please let me know. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. With that being said, hit the subscribe, follow notification bell to get updates about future episodes so you don't miss anything. And go ahead and rate me wherever you're listening, Apple, Spotify, and any other platform that you're listening on. And I would greatly appreciate that. If you would like to send in your story, the email will be in the description. Click the link, send it in, or you can send a voice memo as well. So I appreciate you guys, and I will be back next week. Thank you.